listeners, and welcome to the NK News Podcast. I'm your host, Jacko Zwetslut, and here in Seoul, it is Tuesday, the 28th of July, 2020, and I'm joined in the studio by Andre Lankov and Peter Ward. Hello, and thanks for joining me, gentlemen. Andre Lankov is professor at Gungmin University. His major research interest is North Korean history and society. He is author of numerous journal articles and several books. He is also a director of the Career Risk Group, the company that publishes NK News and NK Pro. Peter Ward is a PhD candidate at the University of Wien, that's Vienna. His research and writings focus on the North Korean economy. Uh, I have to give you a, a slight warning, ladies and gentlemen, that we are trying a new microphone um, setup today that has the two gentlemen sharing one mic, so they're going to have to swivel between the two of them uh, when they're speaking. Uh, apologies in advance for any dropouts or audio loss because of that. So, my two guests together with Jiong Kim, who is professor at the Institute for Korean Christian Culture at Sungshil University, founded in Pyongyang, published an article earlier this year titled The North Korean Workers in Russia Problemizing the Forced Labor Discourse. It was published in Asian Perspective, Volume 44, Number 1, Winter 2020. And so today we're going to be talking about that article and about North Korean overseas workers. So late last year it was reported that some 23,000 North Korean workers had been repatriated to their home country ahead of a December 2019 deadline. The United Nations Security Council Resolution 2375, passed unanimously in September 2017, ordered that all countries repatriate all North Korean workers by December 2019. This is a controversial topic because there are those who say that North Korean workers are abused and exploited and should be sent back. My guests here today say, yes, they suffer poor working conditions and they might be lowly paid compared to other workers, but they are not slave laborers and are often better off than workers back home and should therefore be allowed to continue working abroad. Is that an accurate summary of your position? Yes, I would say so. I would even say, yes, they are exploited and abused and they are working in a terrible work situations. The problem is, when they are sent back home, they will, be, they will suffer even greater level of exploitation and abuse and will have to work in much worse work situations for much, much, much less money. Now, Andre, I've been reading and listening to you for many years, at least 16 years now, and you have long expressed such a position as you've just said now, even long before this article was published. So I guess I must ask, was your article written from the perspective of a conclusion that was looking for evidence to back it up? For me, well, if you like, yes. But the problem is that this conclusion is based on evidence because I was growing in a society where these workers have been present. And I, you know, when I was basically at high school, I began to tell stories about North Koreans who are so happy to drive trucks for 70 rubles a month, which was laughing because a Russian driver would not touch, would not touch, you know, the door unless he is paid 450 and it was basically six, seven times difference. Everybody says they are driving for 70 rubles and they are telling everybody how happy they are. Or stories about North Koreans who deliberately committed minor crimes in Russia, 
not to be sent back, but to be put into Russian prison because I was told, and it's not, I was not a researcher, I had no idea I would do anything to do with North Korea, I was just a high school student, that basically life in the Russian prison, the Soviet prison in the 70s was significantly better than life in a remote North Korean village. Uh, so, well, it's an evidence which I have seen for all my life, and I'm actually 57 by now. Okay. Uh, how about a, a bit of philosophical background? Uh, do you gentlemen believe, and I think we'll start with Peter first, do you believe in the existence of universal human rights? I think that it is an ideal that is worth uh, living up to. Um, I don't think that uh, rights have an objective uh, basis in fact, but we... You know, they are socially constructed in the same way as most moral values and most other uh, aspects of uh, aspects of society are, obviously. Um, I don't think that human rights have a biological reality or a, a reality external to human society. But yes, I, I believe that human rights are a, a standard that we are continuing to try and perfect and try and live up to and should. Yeah. If you uh, believe, as you say, that there are social contract, uh, social construct that... Uh, countries uh, sign on to and, and uh, choose to uh, uh, aspire to, uh, is it acceptable for countries to opt out of that social construct? Is this something that, you know, uh, that they're, they're not so universal? I wouldn't say that's acceptable, no. Andre, do you have any uh, thoughts on uh, universal human rights? I have no thoughts, but th I think basically it's, as Peter has said, mm -hmm. it's an ideal we probably should strive for. Uh, but in practice, we usually make a choice. Not between good and bad, but between good and better, if they are lucky, and bad and worse, which is normal. Peter, can you give our listeners a quick summary of your argument from this paper about why we shouldn't view North Korean workers overseas, especially in Russia, as victims or as forced laborers? Well, there's several reasons why. First of all, um, they have agency within the uh, the process. They don't. They're not passive trafficked people. You could argue that they're trafficked, but they're certainly not passive in the process. A lot of North Koreans who go abroad, in fact, the majority, so far as we can tell, in fact, a large majority, do so voluntarily, and they do so to uh, to escape poverty at home and to go off and. And make money abroad. Uh, they have a very good idea of uh, what conditions are like abroad, and they know those conditions are harsh, but often much better than uh, what can be found at home. And they go abroad to make money uh, under those harsh conditions in order to come home and potentially start businesses and or enrich their families in other ways. Uh, this is not to um, in any way uh, belie that this is not in any way to try and detract from the fact that the conditions are harsh. It's just that North Koreans are not forced to go abroad. They often do so voluntarily and with great well, in, with significant enthusiasm. Uh, judging by what we have found, and which is not very surprising, pretty much every single North Korean worker, at least in construction and in Russia, I'm not sure about other areas, but I'm sure it's still, this, I strongly suspect it's still the case, Every single one has paid significant bribes and mobilized a great deal of connection to be allowed to go the slave labor. And don't tell me, please, that the poor person has been misled. Uh, because roughly between quarter and half million North Koreans have been overseas. Most of the people we talk to uh, used to have neighbors, relatives, other people who have worked overseas. 
and even more. Some of them were aware about horror stories, about people being, kin- being killed while doing hard work, people going back with bad health, everything. But they have seen so many positive examples of success, very modest success by the standards of the modern rich West brilliant success by the standards of the developing nations. So they decided to go and not just decided. It's not that the government was, you know, searching for them, looking for for them, pushing them to go. They were basically pushing governments, lobbying, bribing, using all means legal and especially legal to be allowed to go. And that's not a new development either. This is not the, you know, the North Korea hasn't suddenly become uh, a society where everyone wants to go abroad to work in the last five or 10 years. As in, we have evidence that uh, Kim Jong-il had to uh, increase the quota of Pyongyangites who were allowed to go uh, abroad for overseas labor trips in the early 1990s because people in Pyongyang were clamoring to be given more places on the quota. And there are information networks in the country, just like there are in every other country. People can't freely discuss politics, but something like what the conditions are at a uh, at a uh, you know at a, a lumber camp or um, uh, in a con- on construction sites in Russia or in China amongst overseas workers are not politically a taboo topics to discuss. So people have reliable sources of information from which to make decisions. Peter, what is this concept of embedded agency that you uh, use in your paper and how did you come across it? The concept that we uh, use was originally um, coined by a a feminist uh, sociologist uh, and basically the idea is that uh, um, she applied it to women in uh, more repressive uh, societies uh, as having being constrained and oppressed by the social structure, but still having the ability and the determination, the the volition to make choices on their own behalf. Um, And basically, I think it applies very well to the workers in this situation. And um, actually, I would credit Andre with finding the concept and applying it. I I was the co-author, but Andre was very much the driving force behind this paper. And it applies very well in this situation. It applies very well in, to to people in position of uh, economic, but also political, you know, structural oppression uh, politically, because often people do still have choices, and they still do try and make the best of. The, they they almost always try and make the best of a, of bad circumstances. And when we present people purely as being uh, passive uh, uh, objects of oppression, we do them a disservice. And that's basically what we're trying to. That's, that's the discourse we're trying to problematize here. Okay, we'll come back to that, uh, that concept a little bit later. Uh, the, your title limits the study to North Korean workers in Russia. But the paper throughout is written in such a way that one could be forgiven for thinking that it addresses the circumstances of all North Korean workers overseas. Uh, how would you respond to that? Uh, very easily. To an extent, it probably does address the conditions of all North Korean workers, at least, at least, not workers employed in manufacturing and kind of, you know, uh, basically manufacturing jobs, which probably, I'm not so sure, are somewhat different. But if you are talking about North Korean construction workers, it's pretty universal. Why it's only in Russia? Well, because I'm from Russia, because I could basically talk to the Russian side of equation. I could talk to people who were employing North Korean workers, people who worked with North Korean workers. And basically, it's not a book a book and an article. You have to be narrow. I basically chose the type of material which was for me and Peter best available. And we decided to do this piece on North Korean workers in Russia. We could write, say, about the Middle East, that would be 
not much different. Uh, so it's pretty much universal because when workers are lobbying for job, usually, usually they don't really have a choice where they will go. Uh, they could be sent to the Middle East if they pay large bribes. They could be sent to Russia if they pay reasonable bribes. And if they were lucky, they could even end up being sent to China. They still would have to pay bribes to be sent to China, but less. Because money are best in the Middle East, but conditions, by the way, are worst. Uh, Russian condition and Russian money are somewhere between actually close to Middle East, but somewhat below. And at the bottom, we have China. Uh, until 2017, approximately how many North Korean workers were believed to be worldwide? Uh, well, there are different estimates. I would say something. Uh, again, we have to have a look by periods. At maximum, it probably was just below 100,000, more or likely say 80,000. But it's probably the peak around 2000, say 15. And what percentage of those overseas workers were believed to be in Russia? About one third, because Russian figures have been stable for decades, frankly. Uh, The first Korean workers arrived in Russia in late 1946, not 1967, as many people claim, but it's a long story, maybe not related. And uh, for most of the time, the number of the Korean workers in Russia oscillated between 10,000 and 30,000. It has been a very stable number for decades. Uh, And uh, so basically, it was about 32, 35, 30. 3,000 before 2017. Okay, so a third in Russia, uh, and then what percentage in the Middle East and what percentage in China? Do we have any any ballpark idea? Uh, uh, Yeah, it depends on the period. Korean workers began to appear in China in noticeable number quite late, maybe maybe close to 2010 or a bit earlier. Before that, uh, Chinese workers basically they were poorly paid and the Chinese uh, entrepreneurs, um, business people, they did not really need North Korean labor. Uh, So initially it was something like, say, if you are talking about the 1990s, it was probably half in Russia, half Middle East. Uh, Then uh, China began to play a larger and larger role because Chinese were getting richer and richer and richer, uh, because the Chinese uh, locals, uh, local uh, Chinese workers were less and less willing to take uh, poorly paid, difficult jobs. And uh, as a result, the share of China was increasing. And Middle East was shrinking, not least because of uh, political situation, all kinds of political frictions, everything. And on top of that, we had used to have briefly very small number, very small number of Korean workers in Europe and other parts of the world, including Africa. Okay, so as you, uh, you just said, then you think that uh, uh, it's, it's reasonable to extrapolate to a certain extent the experience, from the experience of those North Korean workers in Russia to uh, the experience of North Korean workers in the Middle East and China, with the exception of uh, the manufacturing industry. Yes, because uh, we have uh, never been able, actually we are not looking uh, really for such people, but we have never interviewed people who used to work in manufacturing. But the labor conditions are different. Nonetheless, once again, in manufacturing, probably situation is worse, but these people are still paying bribes using connections. And when you are telling me that these are slaves, well, as I have said, last time I checked, in the 17th century in Africa, nobody was paying a bribe to boat a slave ship to the Caribbean. And nobody, having come back, uh, would pay a bribe to a village elder again to be sent to Caribbean again. But it's 
absolutely kind of standard behavior norm. You are coming back, you give money to your wife who is probably running a small business or starting a small business and you just start lobbying again to be sent overseas once again to bring again this three or four or five thousand dollars which is a big amount of money in North Korea. Okay, and we'll come back to this concept of uh, of slave labor a little bit later on. Um, so you advocate that North Korean workers should be allowed to continue working overseas. Uh, Peter, should North Korean workers be protected by the same labor laws as other workers in the countries that they go to? In principle, uh, well, absolutely, of course, if they can be, yeah. What should hosting countries, those that accept North Korean workers, do in order to improve their working and living conditions as they are at the moment? I mean, you you write that that their conditions are not optimal, even though they're desirable uh, uh, on a relative scale for North Korean workers. But what can host countries like Russia, like the Middle East, like China, to uh, to improve those conditions? Well, I mean, a lot of North Korean workers work in construction sites. So if they if if the government the host governments improve. Uh, safety inspection regimes in those. Uh, there are a lot of accidents on such sites. Right, uh, uh, and accidents that can cause injuries or death sometimes. Death, absolutely. Right. Uh, you also write that uh, in many cases the North Korean workers live on the construction sites to reduce uh, transportation costs and logistical costs, and that sometimes leads in cold climates like Russia to death by asphyxiation through uh, uh, in, inappropriate ventilation um, in their uh, ad hoc living quarters, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, isn't it precisely the the sorry? Isn't the attractiveness of North Korean workers overseas precisely the fact that they are not covered by laws on things like minimum wage, pension contributions, health insurance, occupational accident compensation claims, etc.? Uh, is first of all, in most countries, they are actually covered. The problem is that the entire structure of their overseas employment is designed in a way that most of these benefits is taken away by the North Korean government. But before you explode in a righteous anger, let's not forget that what is left to the workers is still much more than the same government is giving to the same workers when they are employed domestically. Having said that, uh, the major attractiveness is relatively low labor cost, not, by the way, not that abysmally low as many people assume, but still you pay North Koreans significantly less than you pay the locals everywhere. Second, in exchange, you get a very reliable workforce. Third, uh, I know it's politically incorrect, but Russians are not known, known for political correctness. They are seen as non-problematic. Unlike migrants from so many other countries, they don't usually get involved with any kind of the local politics just because they are terrified and largely because they are not that interested, uh, because uh, they are not seen as a hotbed for all kinds of radical fundamentalist ideas and so on. And their involvement with local crime, at least in Russia, is pretty close to zero. And finally, being very cynical, not just politically, for an employer, for an industrialist, as every good Marxist will tell you, they love docile labor force. And these people are docile, again, because they are terrified. So this combination of hardworking, non-problematic for the local population, not problematic for the local authorities, and docile, are highly unlikely to go on strikes. Not impossible, by the way, that most likely it's they will just walk away from some 
bad employer, dishonest employer they found themselves, not employers they were assigned to by the government, by their own authorities. So combination of these things makes them a very good choice for the employers. So uh, just hypothetically speaking, if a, uh, a North Korean worker was uh, on a construction site was sick, you would am- imagine that they would be allowed to uh, take a sick day off and go and, and visit a hospital. And if they were injured, you would imagine that they would be allowed to file a compensation claim for that injury. I'm not sure about compensation going to hospital. Yes, it does happen. And I'm aware about these cases. I asked people, unfortunately, it's not mentioned in the article. When things are serious, they do go to hospital and they take sick leaves. Problem is that they are extremely disinterested in doing so because their goal is they are under great pressure to make money, to make money. Because they have a fixed amount of money they have to pay to the government. Everything they make above, and it's a pretty high level, but everything uh, they make above is theirs to keep. So most people uh, act on assumptions they have to work, uh, you know, 12 hours, 15 hours a day. And this is a problem indeed uh, with safety, because uh, all these incidents, I don't remember, I quote these statistics are founded, uh, basically, in Russian documents, in in the, our article, you can see it. It's probably four times the likelihood of a North Korean to have an injury or death on the work site in the construction was roughly four times the average for the Russian construction industry. And one of the reasons they are working day and night, very tight, sometimes sick, just to make money, 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 because they are under great pressure to make money. And now, they're essentially on a short, very intense money working to money making tour. But you, you say that they're, they're, they don't take uh, time off when they're sick because they don't want to lose money. I yes. don't know anything about Russian labor laws, but in, in most countries, uh, it's not, you're not allowed to dock laborers for sick leave. Uh, problem is, uh, in this case, if they are basically, if they are working in Russia, they are largely working for small employers. Who basically, it's very often it's informal contracts where it's basically some oral agreement. Agreement, I will do this amount of work for this amount of time. And they are interested in finishing the work as soon as possible. Is it possible in such circumstances to still be covered by labor protections? Uh, in, in such situations, not, but some of them are working in places where they are covered. Okay, uh, so how, what is the, the source for all this information there? Where did you uh, get the information for the, uh, for the research, Peter? We interviewed North, Korean, North Koreans now living here who used to work as migrant workers in, in Russia. I'm a bit confused about your sample size because your paper says six workers and one manager, but a table lists 12 interviewees. Can you explain? Interviewees are not only workers. Uh, we interviewed people who were employers. Uh, uh, when I was in Vladivostok a couple of years ago, I talked to people to the local administration. Uh, I talked to people who employed the North Korean workers. Uh, unfortunately, I could not uh, get uh, any interviews from big companies, not because because they did not want it, but because I was quite pressed with time myself. It's so these additional people in the list are former employers uh, in Russia, in China. There was one person in China, some other people. Now, the obvious question here is how scientific is this study given the small sample size, six workers and one manager? So first of all, we also looked at the other existing uh, literature on the issue. Um, There are a number of reports that have been published by human rights organizations in Seoul and elsewhere, um, out of Leiden as well. Yes, I want to come back to uh, Remco Broca's work and the work of NKDB. I imagine that you would be familiar with them, but please do go on. Uh, But They they catalog a a large range of uh, human rights abuses and uh, 
problems with the uh, with labor migration. There is also literature in uh, Korean on the subject, uh, which is less focused on the human rights issue and more focused on the economics of the issue, both uh, the demand side uh, and the supply side. And yes, we, we made ample use of that literature. And talking about research, say, E-Area and her group made, uh, she was working on this Sorry, issue. Who? Lee Area. She's uh, from a Japanese uh, scientist, social scientist. She has been doing this study for, I don't know, maybe 15 years or so. And she has published a couple of large working papers and a number of articles in uh, Korean overwhelmingly. Uh, I believe known all everything she has published was either in Japanese or Korean. Uh, yeah, so basically, uh, we are not saying that we are the first person who are doing this type of research. So we basically have a reliable base to rely, a large base to rely on. Okay, so you're basically uh, incorporating the research of others, but yeah, uh, but yeah. using this new lens of embedded agency through which to view their results. Is uh, that- not not only because most of the research, uh, well, uh, basically uh, we just try to add some basic factual data as well. Because this article is a part of much larger project, and there are will be probably a couple more articles which are going to be published on by the same us. topic. Uh, yes, yes, from di- from different point of view, mm-hmm. uh, because. Uh, Uh, it's probably we think it will going to be three or four articles or maybe five articles about this topic. Five maybe a bit too many. Uh, so it was just a part of the project and we tried to get new factual information. Uh, but once again, uh, nothing that uh, we, uh, we are talking about is completely new. And even if you look at some um, publications which are written from this kind of human rights protection, quote-unquote, angle, uh, these people also mention most of the facts we mentioned, like that uh, work is always is, is extremely attractive uh, and that they are making very good money. And by the way, if you look what there is an interesting contrast, if you look uh, at publications on the issue in Korean and compared with the Western publications, you discover that Korean authors are far, far less negative. When you read Western publications, you, you hear this slave labor hype, which I believe to be a distortion and dangerous distortion. But if you look Korean, language publication, maybe some activist groups say the same stuff, uh, tell the same stuff. Most of people, including North Korean defectors, including members of North Korean pro-democracy movement, are far less negative about uh, the labor. The International Labor Organization back in 1930 defined forced labor as all work or service which is extracted from, sorry, exacted. Exacted, yes. From any person under the menace of any penalty and for which the said person has not offered himself voluntarily. Uh, now, you know, since then, as you're aware, because you do mention in your paper, the ILO uh, put out a, uh, an undated uh, commentary that is much broader and more yes, specific yeah, on the definition. Yeah. And that new definition there has 11 indicators used to determine whether the conditions of workers equate those of forced labor. Things like, for example, uh, forced overtime, restriction of movement, uh, docking of pay. You recognize this new definition in your paper as a new expanded definition used by the ILO, but you don't completely take it into consideration. You choose to focus mainly on the idea of the voluntary acceptance of the work position only. Uh, now, in the case of, uh, of North Korean workers, out of those 11 indicators I just mentioned, uh, at least nine of those have been found to be uh, applicable, according to one analyst, making a very serious case for forced labor-like conditions for North Korean workers overseas. Therefore, it's worth asking, 
if this is the more comprehensive definition, why do you prefer to uh, stick to the original, uh, much more limited one? Uh, because much more limited definition was uh, created in the world, which was much more similar to the world of North Korea. Uh, because I believe that a uh, hundred years later, we will have another definition, which will be even more broad and which will include a lot of things which are not included. Maybe I'm too optimistic, I believe it. But talking about this new definition, it was created to protect above all migrant workers, not only, but largely migrant workers in the modern developed West coming from the basically through trafficking system. And in this case, it's probably not really applicable to the North Koreans. And I would argue that it's probably not 9 of 11. I would say definitely this, uh, this restriction of movement is present. And withdrawal of a de facto withdrawal of a significant part of their pay is also present. In regard to other items, probably I would start arguing that maybe it may be a wee bit technical. So, yeah. Right, but so why should we, I, I don't understand why we should limit ourselves to that 1930 definition then, simply because, because those conditions are similar to... Uh, because if we don't, we'll push North Koreans back to the hellish conditions, being full of our moral righteousness. Yes, now you've, you've uh, alluded to this before, that uh, uh, you, you said, for example, so-called uh, human rights discourse, uh, uh, spoke disdainfully of moral righteousness. Uh, uh, I'd I like think to hear... I'm, I'm thinking I'm speaking quite objectively about mor moral righteousness of the naive Westerners. I'd like to hear specifically uh, where it is that you, uh, you know, where is the point of departure from uh, other studies that have been done, for example, in Leiden by Remco Broker, in Seoul by the uh, uh, North NKDB, the Database of Human Rights Abuse in North Korea. Uh, where exactly is the point of departure and what is the issue that you take with these people? So I guess the, the point of departure is uh, on the point of emphasis. So we don't try and sugarcoat the, uh, the abuses and the problems, but we do not uh, we we try we try to focus instead on but we try and focus on something else as opposed to the abuses. Uh, we we focus on the agency of the North Korean workers themselves and their reasons for going abroad and why going abroad is often quite a positive experience for at, at least the people we talk to and we think also given the evidence that has been presented elsewhere for a lot of other North Korean workers who go abroad. Positive by comparison to the alternatives. Positive in relative terms, not in absolute terms, of course, but nonetheless, a positive experience, uh, which enables a lot of families to get ahead in a, a very, very tough and nasty society. So, but it, you, you come back to this uh, concept of agency here, that this is uh, specifically that North Koreans have the power to make a choice to go overseas and, 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 uh, and join these, uh, these work groups. Is that concept of agency enough to, uh, to, to justify the, uh, the conditions? Because I wonder if it's possible to compare North Korean overseas workers to uh, women from poorer countries who are trafficked overseas to, uh, to work in the, uh, the sex industry, who often also pay bribes uh, to get visas that are, I mean, you know, there are not many countries that give visas to sex workers on an open basis. So they often come on, on other kinds of visas, you know, entertainment visas, singing visas, dancing visas, work visas, nanny visas, and then find themselves working in an industry that, that they may or may not have known they may have been fully aware they may not have been fully aware i'm just wondering if that that active choice is is that sufficient to say that uh, what's going on is okay here uh, to start with the embedded agency idea itself was developed to a very large extent in regard to these women as well 
even though mostly people, uh, it was about the women, largely women, it was a, a created by feminist scholar, scholars who are in deeply restrictive patriarchal societies. I feel like you're asking, a, it's a very black and white question. It's either okay or it's not okay. We either, this is either allowed to continue as is or it must be stopped. No, this is something that actually you refer to in your paper there. You say that there's a simple binary there uh, that uh, that doesn't apply. And uh, right. so uh, I'm not uh, advocating a binary option. I'm saying what are the uh, the alternatives to this simple binary option? Well, I mean, the alternative is not to leave things as they are, but it's also not to complete. It's not to stop things completely either. It's probably going to be a negotiated and nuanced process, which requires engagement from people uh, on the outside, but also it's going to require pressure to host governments to try and improve labor conditions. But a lot of these problems with labor conditions are not just for North Korean workers. It's just the North Korean labor case, which is now been turned into. Um, uh, you know, which has now become, you know, an issue that's been dealt with by the Security Council and has become the object of sanctions. Like employers in Russia don't treat North Korean workers uniquely badly. Um, yes, there are serious problems that we talk about and that other people have talked about as well um, that uh, for North Korean workers and uh, with respect to the way they're treated by their North Korean supervisors and their North Korean bosses and the North, by the North Korean state. But North Korean workers on construction sites in Russia are not treated uniquely badly. Many migrant workers also have tough conditions. Many migrant workers also uh, are going to uh, have problems, uh, you know, are going to suffer accidents and there's going to be problems with safety. The difference is we're not talking about them, are we? We're talking about North Korean workers um, and other people are talking about North Korean workers. The, the plight of migrant workers across the world is very concerning and but nonetheless, uh, a lot of people do uh, migrate voluntarily to work on construction sites and in other bad labor conditions to make money to improve the lives of their families back home. Remittances are a huge part of the global economy, after all, aren't they? It seems like that's the kind of job that the International Labor Organization would be uh, fitted for, with its uh, 11 uh, markers, indicators for uh, what forced labor might be. And I don't mean the International Labor Organization of 1930. I mean the International Labor Organization of 2020. Wonderful. The problem is that if you follow these wonderful, well-designed rules, you will end up, instead of improving the situation of these people, you will basically push them back to North Korea. And I'm pessimistic. I'm not really arguing in favor of keeping North Korean workers in their construction sites because it's not going to happen, with the exception of China, where the situation is worse. Why? Because there are powerful interests, strange bedfellows of the Western liberal left who believes that they are saving people by pushing them essentially to the hell because they have not found a perfect paradise. And I wouldn't say cynical because I don't necessarily blame them, uh, but the cold warriors who just want to create economic crisis, preferably economic collapse in North Korea, so it will have no choice but to surrender nuclear weapons or see its current leadership, by the way, very nasty people, being lynched by the revolutionary mob. You have these strategic planners who want to deprive North Korea of any income, so it will be in crisis, revolution, Chinese takeover, whichever. And you have the idealists who want to enforce this wonderful, good-looking uh, system, and they want to see themselves as great protectors of human rights, and these people are going to win. They have won, and North Koreans will, are paying the price for it. Because for decades, the best way for a North Korean to get out of poverty, of destitution, was to find such a job. Your chances of being 
of coming back home dead or handicapped were significantly high. But it was much more likely that you will bring money. And what's happening now? North Korea is, in spite of all this uh, basically propaganda talk, is not more communist than China. Maybe people in the State Department likes like to portray China as a communist society. For me, it's, you know, cutthroat capitalism. And North Korea is not different that much. Uh, but And if you want to get out of the low strata in this society, not the lowest, because lowest will never be allowed to become a slave labor. It's another remark. You are saying they're slave labor. Last time I checked in Africa, you need, need not to be a relative of a village chief to be allowed to board a slave ship. Because people with bad family background, people who are seen as suspicious, are not allowed unless they pay really big bribes. Having said that, uh, if you are at the bottom, not at the very bottom, but sort of at the bottom, your chances to become a member of small but existing North Korean middle class is to start your own business or to get professional training for your children, and you cannot do it on your normal salaries. If you are just a hardworking North Korean, the only chance for you, real chance, is to go overseas. All other chances are pretty much non-existent for the common person. And now, thanks to these moral crusaders from the Western universities and Cold War warriors from the CIA and State Department, they have lost this chance, and they don't expect this chance to come back, uh, come back again. I'm just lament. And it's just telling these people that their war had serious collateral damage. Okay, you've just talked a bit about the uh, the economic importance to the individual North Korean worker of the opportunity to work overseas. Peter, uh, you do a lot of writing on the North Korean economy. Is overseas work important for North Korea's national economy? Um, I would say that it is a small but noticeable noticeable part of a foreign uh Forex income for the North Korean government and for North Korean workers themselves who go overseas. Yeah. Okay. So, if if North Korea as a country were trading normally, you know, that is, you know, without uh, other sanctions, it it wouldn't need to rely on uh, the income sent back by overseas workers to keep the country going. It's not like, for example, in the Philippines, where I've forgotten the number. You might be familiar that there's a certain percentage of GDP that does come from uh, remittances, which is, as you say, it's very high. It, uh, so, but but North Korea, it's not quite that high at all. So far as we know. But although I, I would say that I would query Andre's numbers from earlier about the size of the North Korean, um, uh, the, the North Korean overseas uh, labor pool, it could be much, much higher. I've heard rumors and uh, stories that it's much higher in China than what we actually hear. You know, it could be in the hundreds of thousands or it has been in the past. It depends how you uh, define an overseas worker. You know, Dave laborers in Dandong also, uh, other people who go across the border. And then, uh, yeah, obviously more informalized patterns of uh, migration What's the uh, gender division? Uh, what percentage of North Korean workers are men? Uh, historically, it was males only. Once again, in order to become a slave, you had to come, you had to be a member of the ruling party, you had to be male, you had to have good political credentials, and ideally you should come from uh, Pyongyang on other privileged background. In other ways, you had to be a male from a semi-privileged background to be allowed to go overseas. And of course, it was not enough. You had to pay bribes anyway. 
Women historically were present only in restaurant business. The waitresses uh, in the North Korean restaurants, sometimes people doing some cooking, but not frequently. Cooking was largely done by males and so on. Uh, so the appearance of women is a relatively recent phenomenon. In Russia, only around 2010. In China, probably a bit earlier. Uh, and women were always employed in manufacturing jobs, which meant much worse conditions. You mean uh, uh, light manufacturing or heavy manufacturing? Uh, not light manufacturing. Usually in, its, uh, in Russia, it was textile industry and food processing. In China, it was food processing, it was uh, some uh, textile and garment production, and it was also, um, uh, you know, dealing with simple work with electronics, you know, as, uh, assembling electronic yeah. equipment and... Soldering. Uh, yes, something quite simple like that, but requires a great deal of concentration. Uh, but uh, so I have... I would... I would not even guess how many women are among the workers. It's clearly a relatively small minority. And they were, at least in Russia, first to kicked out. I think that there are virtually no female workers in Russia right now, with the exception of restaurants. Uh, maybe some in China, uh, but we are talking about very small number. Maybe, I don't know, 5%, 10% of the total. And it's new. Historically, for generations, it was males-only business. Uh, when North Koreans uh, choose to go and work overseas, so in Russia, uh, to what extent are they aware of the work that they'll be doing and the conditions and the wages before they leave home? Nearly all of them have had some neighbors, friends, whoever who have been there. I just quote some stuff from their uh, article like, you know, in our neighborhood we had if I remember, three families uh, who went uh, overseas to work in Russia. One guy came back sick, he, w- he got seriously drunk and died soon. Another one, two of families came very rich. One brought a full truck, truck full of goods. They sold it, they bought equipment, they started a small workshop. They are one of the richest families in our neighborhood. Or another story. In our, our house, uh, there were a number, because it was an expensive, good place, so there were many people who have been or worked overseas in Russia and Middle East. And they did say that life was tough there, but they were running business, manufacturing, furniture, something else. I don't remember exactly. Okay, but, but that's all uh, what I would call general information yeah. about the conditions they could expect. Yeah. What I want to know is, uh, do they know beforehand, I'm going to be working uh, as a lumberjack here, or I'm going to be working no. in this factory there, or I'm going to be constructing a football stadium in Qatar? You know, Do they know specifically any of the, the details before they go? Peter? Definitely Definitely not. The issue is with with Russian uh, the Russian situation. It, it very much uh, mimics the general state of the construction market in Russia, which means that uh, projects are often short. Arrangements are informal. Uh, workers themselves often. Uh, make agreements with their Russian counterparties in the contract. So some people obviously live in dormitories and have fixed work arrangements for their entire time there, or they go from project to project managed by a North Korean uh, cadre. But a lot of workers actually find their own work or work with other workers to find work and uh, uh, basically decide where they work, who they work with, etc. Andre often tells a story about a North Korean tiler, someone who who did tiling for a for a Russian um, for a Russian family. Th- these projects Projects are often so a fair number of North uh, North Korean workers in Russia are basically uh, they work as like semi-independent. These people are called people working on contracts. Uh, so it's uh, people, everybody, 
and it seems to be a majority in Russia, at least in the last 10-15 years, most of the workers, uh, they were looking for their own employment. If so a, they were not assigned employment by the government. They were looking by the, for their own employment. They negotiated all conditions. Usually it was a certain amount of work they had to make. They had to make and then uh, they were paid by their employees. It was largely small or very small construction companies. You know, I was talking with somebody who was doing kind of gardening, gardening design, and she was always employing for her company on short term for some specific work, uh, North Korean work team. So you're saying that in Russia, if a North Korean worker arrives on a site and finds the conditions or the payment are not what they think are acceptable, that they have the choice to turn around and find another site to work on or go back home to North Korea or, or whatever? He's not crazy to go back home to North Korea. Okay, then crazy? forget that option then. But can he go to another site and start somewhere else? It then? depends whether the sign whether you belong to the significant minority of people who have been assigned their work. And again, there are some gray zone between, but let's forget about it for, for simplicity. And yeah, if you have been assigned by your work, of course you cannot. And this is something you say. A majority uh, found their work themselves, of, and of course they can. Okay, and this, but this uh, sort of independence or autonomy of North Korean workers is something you say is is unique to the Russian system, is it not? Uh, it's by some reasons I don't quite understand. It's very common in Russia. It's it happens in the Middle East but usually as a sidewalk. So they have an assigned walk, and on top of that, they can walk, find their own employment with not even usually small construction companies. It's individuals. And it's uh, completely absent in China. I'm not so sure about other areas. The workers who you interviewed have now defected to South Korea. Uh, what prompted them to leave North Korea if their conditions were so good? Conditions were very bad compared to what? They were good compared to what? Well, as we've just uh, discussed here, you say that uh, North Korean workers who are allowed to work overseas have uh, much better lives than uh, the average then, North Koreans. So absolutely, relative to average they do. North Koreans. Absolutely, no so doubt. why did they then uh, decide to leave that burgeoning middle class in, in North Korea and come and live in South uh, Korea, because, uh, because where they would be a, a, a rung lower in the society? Absolutely, they are definitely far, far better than any middle class. As one North Korean uh, recently remarked, trying to persuade her father to come to South Korea, she said, a party secretary in our district lives as well as a homeless person in front of Seoul railway station. Maybe it was a minor exaggeration. Was her father persuaded by this argument? Um, as far as I understand, yes. Uh, but uh, actually, as a middle class in North Korea is a person who can afford to have an old motorbike and maybe, just maybe, eat meat twice a week. Uh, yes, so all these people who are coming back to North uh, to uh, who are coming to South Korea, they have much better living standards. Surprisingly, many of them are involved in uh, South Korea in construction industry, and they are basically paid as regular construction workers here, which is probably a few times more than they would ever make in Russia. I think maybe five, ten times, and you cannot even compare with North Korea. So when I say they are living better. I said they are living better in Russia than the average North Korean worker inside the country, far better. But compared to South Korea, well... Uh, you're clearly uh, against the uh, rescue discourse. You've talked about that uh, disparagingly in the paper, that uh, the people who are trying to stop the trafficking of North Korean workers abroad. So let's look at something else. Is there 
a certain set of conditions under which the North Korean government would agree to send laborers overseas and comply with core requirements. So labor contracts, individual bank accounts, not withholding personal documents, no restriction of movement. And if so, how can we get to those conditions? There is no such condition. A restriction of movement is vital because if they don't have restriction of movement, uh, a significant part of workers will defect and they know it. Of course, their families are acting as hostages. And these people, once they are overseas, they lose con- uh, control of these people. Maybe, just maybe, it's possible to negotiate it, and this probably should be a goal, but I don't think it's possible. Peter, do you agree? Yeah, I think that the uh, many of these conditions are the product of the North Korean system, which requires uh, a level of control and intrusive surveillance over the lives of North Koreans to just basically continue to exist so far as the uh, regime is actually concerned, core interests of the regime. If uh, if North Korean overseas labor is not that important to the North Korean economy, and we don't think it is, or you, you, in you, macro terms, I wouldn't say in macro terms, yeah. why does the North Korean government take this uh, so-called risk? Uh, yes, it's a risk, but compared to money, money are not great. Uh, it seems that they basically get the same amount of money by selling to the Chinese uh, rights to fish for squid mm. in uh, Eastern Sea. It's but there small... is a larger risk of, uh, of something, you know, I mean, uh, it, to a certain extent, creating a, a middle class in North Korea that wants more, materially more, uh, th- there's some cost involved in that, no, some I risk involved in that. Uh, Why? What's, what's in it for the North Korean government? Why do they do this? Why do they allow this? Every little helps, obviously. They're in a pretty tough spot economically, and they uh, have been for the last 20 years. They're in a position of basically crisis, and this is a small but noticeable part of their foreign trade accounts. So they're going to, yeah. But as Andre said, they've been doing this since 1946. Sure. This is not something new. Uh, sure. But, but the, you know, the, the, the problem the, of contamination is relatively new. Uh, ah. You know, given, you know, Soviet, uh, North Koreans working in Soviet lumber camps in the 70s and 80s were not considered to be a source of potential ideological contamination to the same extent that they are, uh, you know, they would be, construction workers would be now. In lumber camps in the 1960s, 70s, 80s, the old model, lumber camp model, they were basically banned from interaction with the Soviet citizens and they were located anyway, far away from any, any Russian settlement. Uh, so it was in the middle of nowhere and under close surveillance. So they still come back with, you know, fridges and TV sets bought in the Russian shops and the stories about Soviet prosperity, but was far, far less dangerous. Well, I can point to other cases where the North Korean government takes big risks, which don't, in in retrospect, seem to be a good idea from our point of view uh, financially. So this is not the only kind. I mean, I think of tourism, a lot of tourism, as in it's not that big a revenue earner, given how dangerous it potentially is for the North Korean government. But they invest a lot of money in it. They've invested a lot of money in in hotels, for instance, things that we consider to be very irrational, because they think that there is money to be made from it. Dangerous in terms of ideological contamination. Exactly. Exactly. All right, Andre, final thoughts, 30 seconds. As I have said, uh, basically, it's I'm pessimistic. I believe that uh, North Korean labor project is over for now, with possible exception of China. I think it will be revived eventually because uh, interests of many parties involved will lead to its revival, but it will probably happen much later and under a very different circumstances, set of circumstances. And I think it's it's quite bad that all this dishonest and superficial slave labor discourse has won the day. I don't I'm not talking about uh, progressive academics. I'm not talking. I understand their logic. I believe it's faulty logic, but I understand why they are doing it. If we are talking about dishonesty, we're probably talking about people who were actually going to strive the North Korean economy, deprive it of 
its cash earnings and were looking for some good-looking justification for their activity. Uh, uh, it's not applicable to the academics, but it's probably quite applicable to the strategists. Uh, but anyway, they have won the day. Well, it's not good. It's not good because North Koreans will have less money and probably they will know even less about the outside world because it's another story. Mm-hmm. Let's not forget that Tyler, whom Peter mentioned, in his oral work contract was the conditions that he would have a long lunch break, two and a half hours. He will spend watching South Korean TV. Thank you very much. That's where we're going to have to end it today. Thank you, Andre. Thank you, Peter. Good luck with your further papers and research on this topic. And uh, Peter, if I'm allowed to say, good luck in Vienna. <laughs> <laughs>